We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, my name is Jeff, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is February 10th, 2013, which uh, gives me almost double digits. So it really just gives me today, though. This is a a really great gift for me to be able to do this. Uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I was taught a long time ago that when somebody in AA asks you to do something, you say yes. Even if you don't want to, even if you don't know how, you say yes and you give it a shot and do the best job you can. So that's what I'm going to do here today is just give it a shot, do the best job I can. I've spoken at uh, a lot of a lot of speaker meetings, but never done this sort of format. So I'm just going to give it a shot and do the best job I can. Uh, I have a sponsor. I am a sponsor. And I'm going to try to work that uh, into my story a little bit because it's so important to me and I feel like it's a critical part of our program. So I'm going to kind of share a little bit about uh, what it was like, what happened, and uh, what life is like now. So for me, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, suburbs. I started off as a really oversensitive child, mostly regarding uh, fairness. And I had a little brother that I just wanted to make sure I was getting the same treatment, you know, very equal, even Steven type of stuff, and never felt like I was getting the same treatment. But uh, I learned later that uh, that was really more of my perspective. Uh, My parents were very involved in the church, so that meant I was very involved in the church, whether I liked it or not. And I didn't like it, uh, but I thought that since I was there and I was involved, that that made me a spiritual person by default. And I just sort of assumed that for a long time, that I was spiritual, not really understanding what that meant. But pretty normal childhood, public school, summer vacations, sports were a big part of my childhood. I played basketball and wrestling. I found I was a pretty good football player by uh, middle school, probably just because I was very angry. You know, a big part of my story is, um, you know, that anger and, and my outlets for that anger and where it comes from. But really, I excelled in in football for a time, learned that I could earn some respect on the football field by hitting people as hard as I could. Wasn't the biggest, wasn't the strongest, wasn't the fastest, but I was the angriest. (laughs) And that served me well uh, in sports for a time. Through middle school, my older brother and I fought constantly. I would lose constantly. Uh, made me even more angry. I think I just felt like, you know, nobody was, nobody was there to protect me. And I look back on that now. I understand that that's just uh, sometimes a part of growing up. I thought it was unique for me. It wasn't. So I I started to isolate at a very young age in middle school. I was in the the Boy Scouts and liked to go camping a lot, but I liked to go camping by myself because uh, I just felt like, some sort of, you know, loner and survivor type out there that, you know, I could, I could handle anything on my own. I got in a lot of trouble in Boy Scouts. I started sneaking drugs and started sneaking alcohol in the Boy Scouts and 
I'd get in trouble with the with the leaders and they'd call my parents and my parents were aware at a young age that I was sneaking drugs and alcohol. And, you know, most of that was some experimentation stuff, but, you know, I, I do remember uh, one of the very first times I sort of came up with the plan on my own was I took one of those plastic pitchers, like an iced tea pitcher and I filled it up with a little bit of this and a little bit of that from the parents' liquor cabinet and uh, (laughs) no ice no juice, no, no, nothing, nothing to cut it with. Just, you know, about four shots of eight different bottles and put it in an iced tea container and walked down to the tennis courts where I met up with a couple of buddies and and we each tasted that thing and then hot sun and it was awful. Uh, (laughs) You know, they tasted it and they were like, Oh, that's gross. I'm not drinking that. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is the greatest thing ever. Uh, And just, just trying to show off a little bit, but you know, it was really the effect that I I got right away. I came back to my house and, and puked all over the house <laughs> and still wanted to do it again right away. Not understanding that uh, there was there was a cause and effect here. All, all I really wanted was that escape. And so I was I was trying to find that escape in everything. I was trying to find it in football. I was trying to find it in uh, being a loner, camping by myself, trying to play survivor out there i was trying to find all these different ways to to escape just what i was feeling and you know the best way that i found was alcohol as soon as i realized that was a a good escape i just kept sneaking more and more sometimes it was just to impress the girls or you know impress my friends or something like that I, i was trying to be a bad boy there for a while and I was in high school in the early 90s and it seemed like everybody was drinking and doing drugs and it seemed like the girls only wanted to go out with the bad guy. And so, uh, you know, I tried to be the bad boy and I did everything I could to play that part, fighting and alcohol and drugs and arrested and stuff like that. And part of it, too, for me was my father was a uh, school administrator in the town I grew up in. And so... He was um, kind of like, you know, all the teachers knew him and he had hired a lot of my high school teachers. And so I was always trying to prove to my teachers that I wasn't like him. <laughs> and then with my friends who all knew this too, uh, friends and acquaintances, they would, you know, say, oh, that's the administrator's kid. And you, know, you, you don't want to do anything around him, you know, because it'll get back to somebody. And so I was always trying to prove to the guys in high school that no it's okay you can you could party around me because I party too and so I think I probably started to you know show I had to show them that I could party and so I would do more of this more of that more 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 so that you know I could feel like I fit in because I didn't want to be that that outcast even though you know in my in my real alone type thoughts I I just, I knew I didn't fit in and preferred to be alone anyway, but so, you know, meanwhile, my parents are freaking out and getting in a lot of trouble at school and my older brother had gone off to college and I was, I was pushing my parents around. I was an angry, angry guy. I kind of had this defensive stance of, you know, if I'm not treated the right way, then I'm out. And I use that as leverage. If you don't, do what I what I want and what I say, then 
you know, I'm out and you'll never see me again. I'll either disappear or I'll kill myself or I'll, I'll just, you'll be sorry. was my, was my attitude. My grades were uh, just barely good enough to stay on the football team, but my performance was getting worse, both in uh, sports and in school, and my grades were really low. But uh, then people started to to want, want to go to college, and I was thinking, like, you know, well, what am I going to do? I, I talked to an Army recruiter. I thought I wanted to go that route, got talked out of that, and then uh, people were going off to different colleges, and I was like, well, what's the party school? And, and I was like, okay, well, I can't get into that school because my grades are terrible. But I did get into a into one school and uh, just followed some friends there and, uh, you know, just immediately grabbed on to the fraternity life and didn't care at all about my grades, living in a dorm and uh, sneaking around. And I, I found this way to cut a Coke can just perfectly so it fit over top of a beer can, which you know, I just thought I was a genius for this thing. And walking around the dorms, drinking beer, and you know, everybody thinks it's a Coke. Ha, ha, ha. You know? <laughs> and that was my attitude for a long time was I'm getting away with something that you know I can do this because I'm smarter or sneakier or I've got this figured out. And, and uh, you know, I was just, I was really just getting wasted all the time and people knew it. I thought I had people fooled. I didn't, you know, all I had inside was really just anger and, and I just manifested it through, through drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I, I know that I probably suffered a few concussions from the football field, but back in the nineties, that was just, you know, part of the game. I was just part of the deal. We would just say, you know, you got your bell wrong or something like that and go sit out for a play. And, you know, I, I was in pain a lot, but I, I would drink a lot and, you know, that would numb the pain. And, you know, so I used that as kind of a excuse for more, more drinking, more pain killing. And, you know, again, all throughout this, I, I just, I thought I was a spiritual person because I grew up in the church and, you know, I, I had, Every Sunday, I listened to a pastor talk about passages from the Bible. And, you know, I, I really did listen, but I didn't get it. You know, so that was kind of tricking me on the inside all along. And and you know, people would ask me, we'd have these debates, late night college life. And, you know, they would have these debates about God and about spirituality. And I would act like I knew what I was talking about when I knew I didn't. You know, I was just trying to trying to keep up and trying to lie to myself and lie to other people about what was really going on. And what was really going on for me was I was lost. I was completely lost. I just didn't have a clue what my purpose was, what I was doing, where I was going. I couldn't pick a major. I couldn't pick an industry I wanted to go into. I never really had a passion for anything. You know, my only passion was, was listening to heavy metal music. You know, I, I loved Metallica, still do. Metallica was uh, was my jam. And so that was the only thing I was really passionate about for a long time. And through that fraternity life, I connected with a girl I went to high school with and we started dating. And um, you know, I tried to fit into that, to that world where she was in a sorority and I was in a fraternity and kind of just knew that I was, I was on the outside and people were looking at me and going, does this guy belong? They, they weren't really, but in my head, they were all looking at me going, does he belong here? 
So I would drink more and I would stay up the latest and I would be the party animal to show everybody that, yes, I belong in this life. And meanwhile, my, my grades are horrendous. I'm not going to class. And so I got kicked out. I got kicked out in my first year of college and uh, had moved back home in with my parents. And so that uh, was humiliating, made me angry. I blamed it on other people. It was never my fault. It was always something else. And I still held that defensive stance of how dare you? How dare this world treat me this way? You know, when am I going to catch a break was really how I felt. Like everybody else seems to be catching a break in life except me. And so since I can't catch a break, I've earned the alcohol. I've earned the party life. I've earned to escape from this because I can't catch a break. So back home with my with my parents, I uh, started attending a uh, a uh, community college. Got a couple of decent grades there, even though I was still partying, and just had to get out of my parents' house. I, I was working for the city at that time. I was I was a garbage man, which you know I, I love that job. <laughs> Uh, it's it was funny then it's it's still funny now to say but you know, i i loved working for the city i loved being a garbage man it was awesome and then we got to work outside all day we got to get a good workout in and we're getting good shape and by the way if we got done by 2 30 every day we could go sit in the park and drink and so that was the big draw there was uh you know really bust ass work real hard and go sit in the park and drink until it's time to clock out. So I would come home every day and, and uh, just stink coming from being a garbage man, but also you know, drinking like 12 beers and, you know, a little bit of crappy wine and sitting in the park sweating and I'd come home and my parents would be like, what's wrong with you? You stink. And I said, well, of course I stink. I'm a garbage man. You know, <laughs> I'd take a shower, eat some dinner and go out and uh, stay out till two, three in the morning and, wake up at seven and, and be back at work at seven thirty and do it all over again. And that was just the, that was the routine. So I just had to, had to get out of that. And so I hooked up with a couple of buddies that were going to a school that was three, three and a half hours away from my hometown. And that seemed to be about the right distance for me. So I said, yeah, I want in on that. And it was a, a community college or a technical college, but it was far enough away where it suited me perfectly. And so, uh, I went down to um, to visit this little town where this technical college was located. Southeast Ohio is uh, a completely different world from where I grew up in the Cleveland area. It's basically uh, Appalachia. You know, it was different. It was a bit of a geography change for me. Things were going to be different now. I was going to live with my buddies and uh, we had apartments over this little pizza joint. There was a bar down the street tricked myself into thinking I was passionate about this new field of study I was going to be in of natural resources and ecological sciences. And I was going to be, um, it's going to be a park ranger so I could move out to the Rockies and, you know, be this awesome park ranger, but also never have to deal with people. <laughs> that was my grand plan. So I moved down to the school and, and moved in with my buddies and just, I, I brought myself, I brought my anger with me. I brought all the same issues with me and, uh, the same exact lifestyle ensued where, uh, you know, we just went down to this bar every night and the theme was, you know, be, be a tough guy. And so we got in a lot of fights and had a lot of 
lot of trouble with the police there. They knew who, who I was. They knew who we were. And we weren't, uh, we weren't welcome at that bar for very long, but I kept on, you know, we, things kind of fell apart with my buddies for different reasons. Each of them left, went either home or found a new school to go to, or, uh, each of them had different things going on, but we were all, uh, we were all a bit out of control at that time. And then, you know, as I found myself in this small town kind of by, by myself again, and, uh, a buddy of mine that I'd known from back home, uh, called up and he says, uh, to say, I'm thinking about going to school down there. I said, oh, that's perfect, man. You're going to love it. <laughs> it's the greatest place ever, you know, really giving him the hard sell on it. And, uh, and so he did, he came down and we played softball and we had a lot of fun doing that. And I kind of, uh, cleaned myself up for a little bit and I'm still drinking real hard, but back in school, got decent grades, uh, hanging out with my buddy, Steve, we just kind of decided we were going to transfer to the university that was nearby. So his, his grades were good enough to do that. He transferred before I did. I needed another couple of semesters, I think two semesters to get my grades up. And then I transferred too. We lived together for a while and we started creating uh, a new little, new little life there with college friends. And, uh, you know, we were in a nice group, thought we were the, the coolest thing and partying all the time and still going to class and making things happen. And then, you know, we discovered the, the Disneyland for drunks, we called it, uh, this little college town in Southeast Ohio where 26 bars on two streets and you could just, we called it the shuffle. You just go from one bar to the next and, you know, the last bar doesn't know how much of an ass of yourself you made at the previous bar. So, you know, you got a whole new fresh set of people to impress or <laughs> anger. So we did a lot of that. And, and it, it was, it was difficult for me because I, I thought, I thought this is what you're supposed to do, but I had been doing this so long by now anyway, that um, it was just eating away at me inside and, and the truth is I was miserable. I just couldn't show it. I couldn't tell anybody. We used to say things like rehab is for quitters. We used to make fun of people that uh, got clean or stopped drinking and, you know, don't trust a guy that you can't drink with that kind of stuff. You know, knowing that in the back of my mind, deep in my heart, I had a problem, but I just, I was too scared to face it. And then even if I did face it in my private thoughts, I would quickly bring back that old, position of defensiveness right what are you talking about are you crazy i i've earned this i deserve this you know because i i can't catch a break and um you know that was just my attitude i just wanted to fight everybody that that looked at me cross and and looked at me with a with any sort of judgment and i thought everybody was looking at me with judgment and so i judged everybody else so that was that was what was going on there and then you know as as it went uh my buddy Steve and I, we made a deal. We said, all right, you know, we were partying pretty hard and we wasted one night. And we said, uh, listen, hey, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, um, you know, clean all the stuff out of my room. <laughs> get all the the illegals out um, so that, you know, my mom doesn't find them or, you know, something like that. We were joking around about it. Um, well, on uh, January 2nd, we went out for the... Uh, Florida State game. We're going to watch the Florida State bowl game on TV at the bar. And 
party pretty hard that night after hitting a sled riding hill all day, drinking all day, and then partying pretty hard at night. We left the bar, and we were in separate cars, which was a little unusual. And uh, we were going to go back to uh, an after-hours party. And um, yeah, he didn't make it. He he went off the road and um, into a tree, and and he didn't make it. And so, um, you know, it was it was a it was devastating. It was uh, a total tragedy for me and and everybody that was around us. And you know, I, I tried to unpack the whole thing uh, many times about you know how I could have done something differently that night if we'd have been in the same car like we normally were. Um, you know, maybe, maybe things would have been different if I had gone to this bar or that bar, or maybe we didn't do that shot, or maybe we didn't talk to that person, or maybe it was the bartender's fault or something. But ultimately, uh, I found the perfect scapegoat was God. And, you know, how could God do this to me? How could God do this to his parents? How could God do this to a guy that was just a good guy and a good friend? And, um, you know, just, it was very difficult to handle. And I, I, I did wind, wind up cleaning out his room. And uh, that was hard because we, we had made that little deal, that sort of little joking kind of bet, thinking that that would never be the case. But there I was packing things into a trunk and going through his, his stuff and you know, I, there were like keepsakes that I felt like I had to hold on to. And a lot of that was um, the music that we listened to, which was a lot of like, social distortion, a lot of punk music. And we were into that at the time. And, you know, I felt like if I listened to that, I could try to reconnect with him or keep his spirit alive some way. I, I actually I, I went to work. I took his old position at the bar as a bouncer. And, um, you know, I just sort of, I don't know why I did it, but I just stepped right into his position. I think I felt like I had to hold the group of friends together, you know, and I also had to look like I'm not falling apart. And and I, I was very concerned that people were looking at me going, this dude is falling apart because I was. And, and I, I do remember being at a keg party once shortly thereafter. And it's the first time I had gone out since the accident and people kept trying to get me to come out, get me to come out because I was kind of isolating for a couple of weeks. And, uh, they got me to come out to this keg party and I found myself standing alone in the backyard next to the keg, just continuing to fill up my cup and pound the beer and fill up the cup, pound the beer. You know, I was just trying to get as wasted as I could because I couldn't handle the way I felt. And, uh, and then I did start to start to hear people whisper, he's, he's not handling this well. And, and, you know, I, I, I should have screamed, of course, I'm not handling this well. I mean, I, I don't have any, I don't have any connection um, with anybody is what I, what I thought. I thought I was just, you know, he's gone and I'm on my own and, and I continued to try to hold people together. But on my, in, in my own thoughts, I, I was devastated and just not handling anything. And so, you know, that went on for a while. I was working at a, as, a, as a bouncer at the bar and people would come in that didn't know what happened. And they'd say, hey, where's Steve? And I'd have to tell them. And, you know, that happened half a dozen times. And, 
you know, so each time it, 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 it almost felt like I'm reliving the thing over and over. I, I did take that trunk of stuff from his room up to his parents three, three hours away. And yeah, that was just one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. But, you know, I, I, I faked that I was doing okay. And I, I wasn't, but I went back to, back to school eventually. And then all of a sudden I felt like, Hey, I, I now have this new excuse, you know, and I met with a counselor at, at the university and, you know, I said, well, hey, man, I'm, you know, I'm not doing that great in school, but this is why. And maybe you could help me out. And some did, some didn't. You know, some gave me a little grace on things that were due and let me take an incomplete and retake the course, that kind of stuff. Some just said, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but, you know, this is this is what it is. And you got to get your work in. And you didn't. So you failed. So I, I was doing terribly in school again as time went on. And uh Ultimately, the, the embarrassment of that, you know, bouncing around the different places to live. And by this time, I'd pretty much cut off all contact with people from back home. And was only talking to my parents like maybe once a month on a Sunday night, they would call and, you know, check in on me. And they were checking in on me all the time. I just wasn't calling back. And I would lie to them and tell them that things were fine. I would lie to them and tell them that I was going to church and you know, I'd even I'd even make up sermons that I heard and and tell them, oh, yeah, this is what we talked about in church today. And, you know, just a total lie. So that that went on for for uh, the rest of my college experience, bouncing around from different crappy places to live. I found myself with no money living uh, in an attic in the summertime with no air conditioning. I found myself living on a front porch and I just kept bouncing around, pissing people off and being an angry guy that changing circles of friends so that I was surrounded by people who were at least, you know, doing what I was doing and wouldn't talk about what happened and wouldn't ask me how things were going. And if they did, I cut them out of my life and uh, moved on to a different group. So ultimately I found myself uh, living in my Toyota Corolla for about three months in the university town, but sort of like out, out on a, in a park where they used to kick me out of quite a bit. I used to try to sleep on a picnic table sometimes and they kicked me out of there and then drive to somewhere else in the park and sleep in my back seat. I did that for a couple of months. I'd come into town and, you know, just kind of see people that I knew and bum a couple of bucks so I could get something to eat and just party. And, and that's all I had money for is just the, the, bottom of the barrel the uh the well shots the the worst cheapest beers the worst cheapest liquor i started getting small bottles of wine that were just as cheap as i could get them and you know that's how i sustained myself you know and then i'd have brief periods of trying to put it together and convince people that i was doing okay and so uh I convinced my buddy that was living in the center of the state in Columbus that I was doing okay. And, um, and so I said, you know, but I got to get out of here. And so I, I left the university town and went up to the center of the state, Columbus, met with uh, my friend. And I said, Hey man, I, I got to get back on my feet. Can I stay on your couch for a couple months or a couple weeks? And he says, how about three weeks? <laughs> He was very smart to put a parameter on that. Probably should have been shorter, but 
I said, deal. All right, three weeks, man. Let's let's call that a deal. And so I stayed on his couch, started looking for a job where there was, you know, the, it's a big city, so there was lots of opportunity, but I thought I was better than most of the jobs that were offered to me. And I was going to hold out for that really awesome job that I thought I deserved, even though I've been kicked out of two colleges by this point, you know, don't have a thing together in my life. And I'm just an angry jerk really and that's how i'm treating everybody that that i come into contact with and so uh ultimately i got this little job in, in collections where i could call people and scream at them for not having uh paid their bills and started getting a little bit of a paycheck so i got this little apartment i had nothing with me really i had a garbage bag full of clothes i, I had an acoustic guitar because i thought i could you know be become a become bob dylan <laughs> I was a big Bob Dylan fan in those days. Um, still am, but I thought that was my ticket. So I was just going to work this collections job until I got discovered, right? And uh, I played a couple of open mic nights. And I think the the first one I played the, the started out with 11 people in the audience. I think I finished with six. So it was not going well. Got this little apartment, sleeping on the floor, sleeping bag. I got a sleeping bag. I got a lamp. I got a garbage bag full of clothes. I got a clock radio. And and I got this little collections job that I'm getting a paycheck with to pay my rent in this crappy apartment. And, but, I, but I think, you know, hey, I'm, I'm making it, you know. I got enough to, to survive and I'm making it. And so, um, you know, I was a daily drinker by this time. And, and my deal was, you know, 18 beers was, was my daily that was my daily deal. Oftentimes I'd go meet people at the bars, didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, I'd do the cheapest shots that I could get my hands on and have other people buy me a couple of drinks. And, and then I'd want to get away from the bar and get away from those people early enough so I could, you know, really tie one on when I got home. I wanted to appear like a social drinker. Most people that knew me knew that I wasn't. They knew that there was uh, something deeper, something bigger going on, but I wanted to appear as though I was a social drinker. So you know, I continued for a while and you know, I started to get a little bit more money and, you know, kind of put things away. And um, I lived nearby this uh, concert venue, this outdoor concert venue. So I would go to all the concerts, even if I couldn't get, get in, I would go hang out in the parking lot and meet new people and do do drugs with them or drink with them and stumble my way home and and that was what I thought was a fun life but inside I, I was still just torn apart you know nothing nothing had really uh really clicked with me and and any kind of spirituality or any kind of connection you know with a higher power I just I had nothing I had no power I had no power over my own uh behavior I had no power over anything that was happening so you know one part of the big book i always look back on in this time is i was always trying to wrest satisfaction out of other people and out of life trying to control things around me and then when i couldn't i would get angry about it and then i would react to that anger and uh and and drink or use or or act out and so things went like that for for quite some time many years i, I was always struck by how many times I was willing to drink and drive even after my best friend there is, is killed in an accident I'm willing to get on the road at two o'clock in the morning hammered 
you know, and, and I knew what I was doing. I mean, I would say, I can't believe I'm doing this, you know, but you know, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. You know, and, and I was just, I was just dying inside because of it. And, and just ashamed as, as anyone could be about anything, just the shame of it all was unbearable. I, I never discussed it with anybody. I just buried it down and was just so ashamed of, of who I was. And, uh, you know, around this time, I actually had reconnected with the girl that I had been dating in my first year, in my first college. And she had just gotten out of a relationship. And uh, so we just started talking again. In fact, a mutual friend got married and she was friends with the bride and I was friends with the groom. And so the bride and groom, in their infinite wisdom, decided to pair us up in the wedding party. So, you know, I fought that tooth and nail, but <laughs> we started dating uh, as a result and and things went well. I mean, we we, we fell right back into a, a good relationship and things were good for a period of time. But eventually my my alcohol and drug use just, um, you know, was a, a big strain on the relationship. Um, she put up with me. She put up with what she knew, which was mostly a lie. And, you know, I never talked to her about what was really going on, but, you know, I could, I could fake it. And I think a lot of us think that way for a long time is we could fake this. We we're smarter than everybody else. We can, we're, we're sneaky in a way that, you know, that's that cunning and baffling part. We're sneaky in a way that's like, you know, we really think we got them fooled. We really do think that because we're, we've been doing this so long. And I remember having that thought quite a bit, like I'm a pro, <laughs> I'm a pro at this. I know exactly what I'm doing. I can moderate when I need to moderate. I can hide and sneak. I can act as if when I need to, I thought I was a pro at that. And I think a lot of us think that what I learned later is everybody knew they just didn't say it. They just, you know, they were worried about me and some of them said something, some of them didn't. And, and even if, even if I was hiding it, even if I was a pro and, and, they, and they couldn't tell, you know, who cares? I was, that's just what I'm doing to myself. Why, why am I lying to everybody else? So anyway, um, eventually I got married to, to that girl and, um, and we bought a house together, not a great house, not in a great area, but we were, we were living, uh, what we thought was our American dream. And, and, um, you know, I got my first sales job where I was working hundred percent commission and then, oh my gosh, that's just totally a, another reason to get drunk all the time, you know, cause I'm kind of making my own schedule and I'm hundred percent commission. So, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll work as hard as I can, make as much money as I can. And if I don't do a very good job, then I don't get paid. So it's, uh, you eat what you sell. And I got into it like a good alcoholic. <laughs> I went, uh, I went all the way with it. I, I decided to tackle sales books and trainings and seminars and really got into it, became a road warrior. I was out on the road selling all the time, working for this home improvement company and going to people's houses and and uh, doing two-hour presentations at their kitchen table. And we had a, a rule at that company at that time that was you either get the deal or you get kicked out. And, um, you know, it was this hardcore sales environment that it was uh it was an excuse to just you know the rejection was 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 a lot i mean there was a lot of rejection so you kind of get used to it and you even tell yourself like of course people kick me out and you know that's just part of the career that i chose you know it's just 
leading to more bad behavior and dishonest with customers and dishonest with my wife. I'm dishonest with everybody in my life. I was dishonest with myself. I was a hider. I was a sneaker, a liar. I would stay out all night. Um, I became scared to drink around other people. You know, it's just tumultuous. It was a tumultuous relationship with my wife at the time and tumultuous inside uh, my own thoughts. So, you know, I just, Turning back to music, as I always did late at night, I would you know, look for the answer in music and started listening to some Christian music and thinking that that would reconnect me with my childhood spirituality that I never had. And of course it didn't. And then I would find the problems in the music and the problems with this religion or that religion and have these little debates with myself about how smart I was compared to everybody else and, you know, just completely living in my own ego and living in my own mess that I created. And so, you know, I, it was really, really difficult at that time. I, I was not able to sleep anymore. I was starting to have physical problems. My feet would have this severe nerve pain and it would happen while I was driving and I had to pull over until the pain went away. And you know, some mornings I, I couldn't step on either foot because it just, the pain was too much, but I, I muscled through, you know, I just, I put on that old that old shield of tough guy and tried to muscle through. And I did, but I, I went, I did make an appointment with a doctor, which uh, was totally unusual for me. I was anti-doctor, anti-dentist, anti-anybody who's going to tell me what's good for me, because how could they know what's good for me better than I do? <laughs> That's what I thought anyway. So I went to this doctor and he, you know, for some crazy reason he asked me like how much are you drinking and i lied of course i was like ah you know I have like three or four beers and he's like what is that like a week and i said no you know three or four beers every couple of days he's like, what is that every day and i said yeah yeah probably every day so which was a total lie i'm having you know at this point i'm having 18 24 beers plus some wine maybe a little uh i used to like to get the the uh, crown royal on ice and like, the super chill on crown royal and I was, uh, I have 18, 24 beers and some Crown Royal. That was my thing. And, and of course, I'm not going to tell the doctor that, but he quickly diagnoses me with uh, anxiety. So, wow, perfect. You know, at this point, I almost wished there was some sort of a medical diagnosis that would explain away all my behavior. Because, you know, on the inside, I know I'm an alcoholic. I just didn't use that word. I knew I had a problem. I just didn't verbalize that or i didn't um i didn't have the self-awareness to do anything about it so when he said anxiety prescribed me some pills cool start taking those pills nothing changes with my drinking so i go back to the doctor and i say hey man you didn't give me enough and so he ups the dosage so now i'm taking this clonopin and taking ambience and i'm still drinking exactly the same way and there are days where you know, I, I'm not even getting out of bed until 10 a.m. I'm supposed to be at work at eight. You know, I'm driving and I, I can't even stay on the road. I got to pull over and I'm just like, this is, you know, this has got to stop. So back to the doctor. Hey, man, you got to change the dosage or something's wrong. Give me a new pill or whatever. And he talks to me again about my drinking. And, you know, you know I, yeah, I mean, I, I may drink a little bit more than I told you the first time, but. That's because of my industry, or that's because of this, or because of that. 
And then he recommends that I go see this intern psychology student. And, uh, that was doing his, his, uh, coursework at the hospital there. And so, I mean, if it does you a favor, doc, I guess I'll do it, you know, but I'm not going to be laying on the couch talking about my feelings. That's just totally out. Don't even ask. And so, uh, I scheduled an appointment with this intern and I go meet him and the guy's younger than me. And, you know, I, I sort of see him as this junior sort of guy. And I'm just kind of like, you know, what, what could this guy possibly have to offer me? And so I don't know what happened, but I wound up telling him about the accident. I wound up telling him about my friend. I wound up telling him about how much I actually drink. And I, I, t- I just wound up being a little honest with him. I don't know why I wasn't honest with anybody, but there's this stranger psychology intern that all of a sudden I'm being honest with. And, uh, and he says, have you tried AA? And I said, Oh yeah, I heard about that. That's, that's not for me. <laughs> that's uh, no thanks. So, um, so, you know, I left there disgruntled, angry at that guy for even suggesting that I need AA. Um, but it, it did stick with me. It's stuck in my head. I mean, I had a resentment on it. I was, I was angry at this guy for even bringing it up, but he brought it up. And so now this seed had been planted. And uh, while I was angry about it, it was still there, still in my brain. And I continued to drink and I continued to you know, take that anxiety medication. And there were other outside issues involved, but you know, things, things were just getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm, I'm spinning out of control. And then one, one weekend, my wife was going to go out of town to see her mother and she was taking, she would take the kid. We had a, a son at this, um, this uh, my son would have been about uh, four years old at this time. And she was going to go take four year old to her mother's house in Chicago. So she was going to be gone for the weekend. And so usually that meant the party is on, you know, I'm going to, and by party, I mean, I'm going to sit alone in my house with my eye glued to the peephole, making sure that nobody's coming close to my front door and I'm going to get wasted and I'm going to supply up and I'm going to do all this. Um, you know, I'm a planner. I, I plan my, my, uh, my behavior. I, I plan my drunks. I, I plan when I'm going to, how many hours it's going to take me to use this kind of drug or that, how many hours it's going to take me to get through this amount of alcohol and then to have a backup and a plan B and a plan C and a plan D and, you know, make sure that I'm nicely stocked and I'm a planner. And so normally wife goes out of town, this plan would have included all kind of supplies. But for some reason that, that psychology interns comment question keeps coming back to me. Have I tried AA? So for whatever reason, on the first night that she was gone uh, and I was home alone, I decided to try an online chat room because I, you know, I'm too cool to go to an actual AA meeting. You know, everybody's going to know me there. You know, I just did the funny thoughts that I had in my head at the time. Um, so I go on a AA chat room and this is in early 2013, January, 2013. And I, I notice on this chat room that, uh, they're talking about some life and death, life and death stuff. And, and that, that took me aback a little bit. I was surprised and I, I was intrigued by it. You know, I remember this story that this woman told about, 
how she felt like her drinking and drug use is what led to her daughter getting cancer. And then other people telling her, you know, that that's really basically that that was not of her doing. And, you know, it was this it was a conversation happening there that was so in depth and large that I almost couldn't comprehend it. And, and it was all of a sudden this idea that, well, maybe there, maybe there's a place for my story here. I started to hear other people share their stories and they sounded very similar to mine in some cases. So I, I continued to do the online chat room for a while. And in the online chat room, you know, my wife came back uh, uh, from out of town, by the way, and she, uh, she was like, well, you're not, you're not drinking. And she thought I was having like you know three beers in the garage every night. That was totally not what was going on, but you know, she was like, okay, whatever. You're not drinking. That's, that's fine. Uh, in the online chat room, they kept on saying things like go to a F2F. I had to look that up. Was it F2F? A face-to-face meeting. And I don't know about that. I still think if I walk in there, everybody's going to know me or everybody's going to judge me. And then I wind up punching people and <laughs> that never ends well. Um, so, but, you know, the seed was planted. And so I did. I looked up a, a face-to-face meeting and I reluctantly drove there and, late January, early February, uh, of 2013. And, um, I sat in the parking lot. I smoked cigarettes at the time. And, uh, I sat there and must've had three cigarettes. And then this guy pulls up to me, pulls up next to me and, uh, he gets out of his car and he's finishing a cigarette. So I get out of my car and finishing my smoke. And he says, Hey, is this where the AA meeting is? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like I've never been here before. Right. Um, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, that's where the AA meeting is. And he goes, Cool, cool, yeah, I've never been to one before. I'm Chuck. He's like, Oh, hey, Chuck, you know, I'm Jeff. And uh, I'll walk in with you because I have no idea where I'm going. I'm hoping Chuck can figure this out before we get to the door because I don't see a sign. I forgot the room number. And so I'm just kind of going along with Chuck at this point. And so we do, we get in there and we go up the stairs and we found this there's a sign and he seemed to know where he was going even though he'd never been there so i kind of just went with chuck sat next to chuck it was a discussion meeting honestly i didn't get much out of it i just sort of remember chuck talking about how uh he had a nudge from the judge to be there you know people asked me to share and i said no i didn't say my name i didn't say i'm an alcoholic i didn't say uh i'm just listening i didn't say i'll pass i just said the word no And and I you know, I'll never forget that meeting. It it was uh not exactly the ideal situation, but it it it, it actually, you know, looking back on it, it's exactly what it was supposed to be. It was a meeting of people that were there, you know, for, for a common problem and a common solution. And I, I wasn't ready yet. So I left there. I didn't drink, but I was angry. Um, nobody came up to me. Nobody said, Oh, let me take you in and give you a loan and bail you out and, you know, be your best friend, fix everything for you. So that pissed me off, but I, I didn't drink, didn't use and, uh, said, all right, let me try a different meeting Found this other meeting. Uh, it's called the hole in the donut and it was closer to my house. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to the, it sounds like they got donuts there. So little did I know the hole in the donut is, is from the 12 and 12 and, the third step in the, in the 12 and 12. So 
Uh, I just thought it meant they had donuts and who doesn't love donuts. So I went to this meeting and I get into this church in this room and this dude next to me smells like weed. So I'm like, all right, if things go really bad here, I'm just going to tell everybody that guy smoked weed in the car and, you know, that'll take the eyes off of me. <laughs> so uh, they start the meeting as a discussion meeting, big book discussion meeting. Yeah, I have no idea what they read. I think I stared at my shoes the whole time. But towards the end of the meeting, this guy across from me started talking about his experience and he kind of shared a little bit about his past. This is a, I was 37 at the time. And this guy was probably in his uh, early 50s. And he started sharing about drugs and he started sharing about alcohol. Now, I know that there's primary purpose, but um, if this guy didn't mention that he had also, uh, use drugs and that that was a part of his story, then I don't know if I would have stayed. So I, I don't put that here or there. I just, just worth mentioning. Uh, cause I looked at this guy and I kind of, he had 22 years of sobriety and I looked at this guy and I was like, that's gotta be bullshit. Right. I mean, who goes 22 years without doing anything? Like there had to be a mistake happened along the way somewhere where somebody put something in his drink or he accidentally took a drink of the wrong glass or something. Something must've happened because I didn't get it. But I listened to his story a little bit and he talked about drugs and alcohol and he talked about how, uh, how he got sober. And, and I later learned that they had completely changed the format of that meeting because I was there. Didn't know that at the time. Of course, that would have made me angry, but, uh, um, that guy wound up being my first sponsor and that meeting wound up being my meeting. I wound up being my home group and, you know, I slowly started to have this spiritual experience. And, you know, I, I know it's talked about sometimes where people have the spir spiritual experience of the gradual variety. Uh, I think that's me. I think that my spiritual experience is ongoing and started right around that time. And, and there wasn't one white light moment. There wasn't one smash over the head and said, now you get it. But there was a lot of little things that happened along the way in there. And, you know, it started, started for me when I got into the rooms and, and got a sponsor and, and my, my first sponsor, he, we're talking on the phone for the first time. And he said, Jeff, if you want me to be your sponsor, you're going to have to ask me. And so I was like, damn it. I thought you'd just volunteer, you know? Um, but he wanted to make sure that, you know, I was, I was following the necessary step of asking, asking for help and asking him to be my sponsor. And, you know, I, I just, I'm so grateful for that, for that moment, for that meeting, for that, uh, for those guys in that group, um, you know, that I'm still friends with them. Uh, even though I don't live in the same state anymore, they changed my life for the better. And, and that's a big part of my spiritual experience. And I, I now believe that God put those guys in my life and, uh, and it saved my life. But, um, you know, so, you know, part of, part of going through the, going through the steps for me was we started a, a step study and we would make casseroles and we would make dinners and we would meet at the church and sometimes we'd meet before the regular meeting sometimes we meet on a different night but we always uh you know who's going to bring the entree who's going to bring the dessert who's going to bring this who's going to bring that and we we had a, a real fellowship about it and all of a sudden i was fitting into something and then we had these um accountability buddies we had step work to do uh in between the step study meetings and we would meet in the park and we would meet uh, this guy's house. And my accountability buddy's name was Jerry. And 
He had an amazing story, but you could also tell there was still some work he was doing and uh, on himself, and, and that was inspiring. You know, I remember working my first fourth step, and I said, hey, Jerry, I'm not sure if I should put this on my list or not. I don't think I have a resentment. I don't, I don't really think about it that much, but do you think I should put this on there? And he said, well, Jeff, let me ask you something. How free do you want to be? Do you want to be a little free? Do you want to be a medium amount of free? Or do you want to be all the way free? Gosh, okay, shit, I'm, I'll put it on the list. <laughs> so I'll put it on the list. Uh, I did my first fifth step with, with my sponsor uh, on his back porch uh, over cigars. And I, I was honest. And it may have been the first time I was totally honest. I mean, I showed up with notebooks full of stuff. And I'm sure he was rolling his eyes, but didn't show it. I'm sure it was... Um, you know, I thought it was stuff he would have never heard before. I learned later, and, and when I started to sponsor guys, I learned later that it's all the same stuff. I mean, it's just a different story, but it's the same stuff. And and my sponsor, uh, my first sponsor there, he, he did a tremendous job of following the book and, and being there for me, but not bailing me out. You know, it's it's tough love, but it's love, you know, and it wasn't anything I was all that familiar with. I mean, there was the love I had with my wife and my son, but I had convoluted everything else in my life and screwed everything else up with the way I felt about love and connection. And I was just defensive about it all. So he really taught me how to, how to be a friend, how to be somebody who could be relied upon, how to be somebody who was there for others um, without, without an ulterior motive, without an angle. And that's really what what uh, attracted me to AA and, and why I kept coming back at first, I think, is because there was no angle. There was no financial angle. There was no, there was no, there was nothing that I was going to be forced to do other than be honest. And, uh, and for like the first time in my life, I could do that. Like all I could do, I couldn't do anything else. Everything else had fallen apart. But the one thing I found myself capable of doing at that time was being honest. And 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 once I got there, once I got to the point where I could get honest with myself and be honest with those guys in that group, I found myself working the steps in a in a meaningful way. I didn't do it perfectly uh, the first time through. I still haven't, but um, you know, I just kept doing it. And, and I keep doing it even to this day, but you know, those guys in that meeting, they, they turned me on to so much that, um, you know, it's, it's hard to even, it's hard to even point back to those things, but all of that was part of my spiritual experience. You know, I met a great friend named Larry who, you know, I, I overheard him talking to a guy that was newer in the meeting. And he, he said to this new guy, the new guy said, Hey, who's that guy over there? And Larry said, Hey, that's Jeff. He's working a good program. And man, did that feel different for me. It was like, I don't know, some sort of lightning bolt for me. Like somebody thinks I'm working a good program. And, and you know, I, I, I never like tried to grade the program uh, or, or other people's programs. But for somebody to think that that what I was doing was was working allowed me the chance to to see that, yeah, it is working. And, and it just kept me going. It kept me motivated. And, and, um, 
and you know, I put six months together and, and I changed jobs. I started working for a, a corporation and sort of a, a entry level position, but I worked my way up uh, in my first couple of years there and you know, I put a year together sobriety. And it wasn't until I had about a year that I learned that uh, here all this time I've been living in Columbus, Ohio, right up the road in Akron, Ohio is where it all started. And so uh, my sponsor and I and, and a couple of guys went to Founders Day in Akron and I just fell in love with it. I just loved it. I loved going to Dr. Bob's house and walking up the steps and uh, where it's got a huge sign on the front that says, welcome home. And there's just you know thousands of people there that are all in AA and they're all there for the same reason and all having a good time. I mean, it was a, it's a party without drugs and alcohol. And that was new for me. And, and so, you know, going through Dr. Bob's house was awesome. And, Thinking about, uh, you know, they, they, you can see where he was like hiding little bottles around the house and, you know, where you can go into the room where he would have uh, newcomers stay that were still, you know, shaken. And there was the attic upstairs where they would have guys uh, drink the cabbage soup or whatever it was that they had him, uh, sauerkraut juice, I think it was. But, um, you know, and going over to the Mayflower Hotel there was awesome where you can see the the elevator where, you know, Bill kind of comes out of the elevator and makes a decision. He hears the clatter of the, the bar on one side and then he sees the church directory on the other side and he decides he's got to find somebody to, to help. And so the church directory is still there and the phone is still there and you, know, you go over and you get your picture taken by the phone and. It was that that was a spiritual experience for me as well. I mean, and I have those pictures. I treasure those pictures. I have a picture of myself sitting at Dr. Bob's kitchen table with the coffee pot. And and I just love that that's available uh, to us and um, and the people that maintain and, and keep that as a sort of museum and all those sites is, is just an amazing thing for us. Um, they've got other great things there, but you should check it out. That's that's my my uh, suggestion. Go check out Founders Day. It's awesome. So anyway, you know, I'm, I'm doing well in sobriety, and and I, I I'm starting to do better uh, in my relationship with my wife. I get to my steps eight and nine, and uh, and I'm starting to run through some amends and getting some pretty uh, good good conversations with my wife about really for the first time being honest about ways that I've been manipulative and oh man, was I manipulative and to try to unlearn all those things. It takes time. It took me some time, but it was worth it. And, um, and the freedom that comes on the other side of that is, is, is just amazing. I, I didn't amends with my parents. Um, you know, I, for the longest time, I didn't think that uh, you know, I had anything to be sorry for. I thought it was everybody else that should be you know, apologizing and making amends and and living in a different way for me. But uh, as it turns out, it, you know, it was me. It was it was my perspective. It was my mentality and mindset, and it was just who I was. That really, you know, with my parents, the one thing I I didn't see at first was the amount of time that they had spent worrying about me worrying about me dying, worrying about me being arrested, worrying about me in in every possible way, um, because that's what parents do. You know, we didn't ask them to do it. And my stance in my active use was, 
I didn't ask you to worry about me. Nobody's asking you to do that. So if you do that, that's on you. Well, that's just not the way it works. And uh, so, you know, part of what I had to see was that my parents worried about me and they could have spent their lives and their time otherwise engaged and otherwise pursuing passions that they had and, and, and enriching their own lives. Instead, I, I created an environment where they worried about me a lot, you know, just, just a plain old simple, I'm sorry, doesn't cut it. So that that's not really what amends is anyway. And, and I had to learn the difference there, but it's a living amends. It's living my life in a different way and understanding who I was and who I am now and who I'm trying to be and what I'm doing about it. And so, um, you know, that, that is a, that is a different deal. I, I had to make some other amends. Um, you know, I started with some low hanging fruit, some easy ones, and I moved on to some, some that were a little bit more challenging. And sometimes, you know, there was, there's one in particular where I made an amends to, to a, uh, to a guy I had worked with where, uh, he said, Hey, this sounds like some weak attempt on absolving yourself and not feeling guilty anymore. So, you know, you can take that and shove it. And now that's, it, it is what it is. You know, I, I did my part and I, I was honest about it. I offered to clean it up and, uh, had a, had a strategy to clean it up and asked if there was some other strategy that might work better to clean it up. And that guy was, uh, he was angry with me and, and, um, ended the conversation. And so, uh, you know, sometimes that's how it goes, but uh, as my good friend in Tampa has said before, as long as I keep my hula hoop clean, then, uh, you know, then I'm okay. So, you know, I, I, I ran through the steps in, while I was living in Columbus the best I could a couple of times, just loved being with those guys. We had so much fun. We used to tailgate meetings, cigars and pizzas before meetings. It was, it was so much fun. It showed me that you can, you can have a, a fun life in sobriety. And that was new for me. And, and I just grabbed onto it, but my career was progressing a little bit. I got an opportunity to, to move from Columbus to Tampa, Florida. And I took it with about two and a half years of sobriety. I took it. So I moved the family down to Tampa immediately night one, very first night, as was suggested to me by my sponsor, go to a meeting. And so I did. And I met a guy there named Tommy D and Tommy D told me about a breakfast meeting they were having the next day. And I went to that meeting. I kept going to meetings and eventually uh, my buddies from Columbus, my sponsorship group from Columbus came down to visit me and we created a, an annual fishing trip that they come down every year, but they came down that first year and I took them to a meeting I had been going to. And since uh, they were visitors, they raised their hands and said, we're from Columbus, Ohio. And then this guy comes up to us after the meeting says he's from Columbus, Ohio, but he's been living in Tampa for 30 years or something. And, so he became my sponsor in Tampa and then I got my sponsor in Ohio and I got my sponsor in Tampa and, uh, really fell in into a good crowd in Tampa and, and, uh, again, had a lot of fun and did a lot of things instead of tailgating meetings, you know, what they do in Tampa is they sail gate on sailboats, really cool stuff. But anyway, so, uh, you know, I was in, I was in Tampa for five years and I had a great home group there called Friday night lights, double speaker meeting in uh riverview florida 
kind of clubhouse there. It's just, it's just a great group of people, a great, great place to, to work your program. There's some really good guys there with some really good program. I loved going down to the Saturday night live meeting um, over in Hyde Park in Tampa or Sandy Beach. Uh, I, th- I think that was his home group for some time. And I uh, love the Sandy Beach recordings, love the CDs, uh, always really liked his stuff a, a lot. I got a lot out of them. And I really try to suggest that to everybody that I talk to, especially newcomers, to, to listen to some Sandy Beach stuff. He really gets the spiritual angle, and, and I've really gotten a lot out of that. So T- Tampa, great stuff for me. I got another opportunity uh, to move over to the Jacksonville, North Florida area, uh, about three hours away from Tampa. And so I took that as my c- career has progressed and uh, moved the family again and uh, did the same thing. You arrive in a new place, very first night, go to a meeting. And so I did. Got a new sponsor and have a sponsorship family now that it's kind of, you know, I have a sponsor, but it's also a sponsorship by committee because we're all kind of, uh, you know, in this group where we go out to dinners and new home group, the uh, big book field study at uh, in uh, Pani Vidra and Nocatee, Florida. It's a great group of people there and just really working my program through through uh through these meetings and i heard it said recently and i kind of grabbed onto it where we live in the program but we just visit everywhere else and i just kind of try to think of that all the time where you know where i spend most of my time when i'm by myself is reading some aa approved literature big book 12 and 12 i just i get more and more out of it every time I do, I do a lot of audio recordings of the big book and the 12 and 12. There's apps for this stuff now. There's a lot of great uh, podcasts out there. There's a lot of great workshops you can listen to. There's, um, you know, I, I got into the history, too. I got into AA Comes of Age. I got into Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers and, you know, some of this stuff that's uh, recommended but not necessarily AA literature just really changed my life and it just continues to. And the way I, I look at it now is all that stuff that happened. Um, there was a purpose for all of that. And, you know, it's still where my spiritual experience continues to unfold. And there was a purpose and a design for, for me. And that is that, you know, I have, I have this program because my purpose is to be there for the newcomer. It's to have a relationship with my higher power that I can seek to get better and I can seek to have a better relationship. And so one thing that I, that I heard and, and also grabbed onto is it's in the seeking. It's in the, the act of searching for how to better your relationship with your higher power even though it may not be perfect, it's just in the fact that you're seeking, that you're searching uh, for a better relationship that, that it comes. Prayer has become something that uh, I didn't think was for me for the longest time. I just didn't, didn't, uh, couldn't grasp it and didn't think that there was, you know, real outcome. I, I don't feel that way today. Things change really what the program has been for me and I think so many others is it's not what we learn it's what we unlearn that we think we really knew 
You know, so many things that I thought I had 100% learned and I knew all the way, I now am unlearning those things because I really didn't know. So I've just let let all that stuff go and through the steps, through the program, through the fellowship, through my higher power and my spiritual connection, I've been able to, you know, learn how to let these things go. It's my job to get back on the beam. It's my job to get undisturbed. It's not anybody else's job. My job to get undisturbed. And uh, and I'm just loving every minute of it now. It's not perfect. I'm still working. You know, it's it's it can be tough and some days are better than others. But I got the tools. I got the program. I got the fellowship. Even if it's just a, a text here and there to a buddy in the program. You know, sometimes it's something small that brings you back. Sometimes you need a little bit more. But but we have those tools. And so, you know, it's, again, it's not perfect, but it's a, uh, it's a work in progress. And, uh, and that's all I can ask for. It's certainly never a place I thought I'd be in my life. I didn't think I was going to live this long, to be honest. In fact, I probably shouldn't have, but here I am and, and I might as well make the most of it and the program and the people and my higher power allow me to do that. So with that, I will pass. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for your story. I enjoyed listening to all the way from where you were to where you are. And I want to take you back to January 2013. So it sounds like you got on to chat rooms, which is so amazing because now we have Zoom meetings. So I imagine you had no trouble in 2020 jumping on Zoom meetings. Right. But I still prefer the face-to-face. There's something better about the face-to-face for me. F2TF2F? F2F, yeah. So you started the chat rooms. Wife went out of town with your son in January, but then your sobriety date's February 10th. Can you fill in the gap there? Yeah, sure. So I put a couple of days together, and when my wife got back, one of the reasons that she had gone to Chicago was because her childhood dog was sick and dying. And so when she came back and she told me that the dog was going to, was going to die and, and, and did it a day later. So, yeah, I, I just, I found myself uh, thinking that what I, what I really, you know, needed was more escape and more control of my emotions so that I could be there for her. And so, you know, I, I, I think, uh, let's see, it was late January. So it was, Probably February 1st through February 9th, there was drinking in there because there was um, what I felt was earned, deserved escapism. And so, um, you know, I think I drank a couple of times in there. And then it was uh, February 10th, uh, February 9th, that I took my last drink and February 10th that I went to my first meeting face to face. Now, the other thing I didn't mention in all that is. I was reading Bill's story throughout this time because in one of those boxes that I had packed up from my friend from college, uh, I found a big book in one of his boxes. And I, when I first found it, I just threw it back in the box and put it away. And, you know, 12 years later, here I am looking in that box again, finding that book. And I was reading Bill's story. And at first I was reading Bill's story while I was drinking. And at first I'm going, oh, this is old. This is written so long ago. This is no application to me. And I kept reading it and I kept reading it. And 
And I had no idea why he had a second edition big book in that room. We never discussed it. Like I said, we, we used to make fun of people that, you know, stopped drinking. Um, we never discussed it, but for some reason he had that book. I don't know if he had gone to meetings. I don't know if he was struggling in that way. He never, we never discussed it, but he had a big book and I picked it up. And 12 years later, I found myself reading it while still drinking and going through this online chat stuff and reading Bill's story and uh, sort of all culminated in, in a face-to-face meeting. And then, and things really started to change. Okay. So for people that aren't listening as diligently as I am, to get this straight, your friend that you talked into coming down to live with you, who dies in an accident and you clean out his room, has a big book in the his room, and it happens to be one of the things you kept and didn't give to his family. That's right. That's right. So is that odd or is that God, right? I mean, I've always looked at that as part of the spiritual experience for me. Hmm. Well, I think Steve is with you wherever he's at. Yeah, I agree. Lighter subject. Do you still have more time? Yeah. Okay. You liked escaping. You liked being alone. Do you still have that desire to escape and have solitude? I do, but I, I I do that. I'm aware of it. And so I do it through music. I have my sort of regiment of program stuff that I do. And, and that's, that's kind of how I escape now. For a while, I got into um, some of the uh, St. Francis story, biography, history kind of stuff. And for me, that kind of stuff is my escape now. I still do it a lot through music, though. And and my range of music is all over the place. But sometimes my escapism is just sort of uh, putting on some Count Basie or some uh, Dorsey Brothers and listening to the music that I think Bill Wilson was shuffling along with Dr. Bob in the streets of Akron, you know, and that's... Hmm. It's imagination, and sometimes that's okay. escaping me, but it's uh, it works. I also try to make sure that I keep in my mind that I'm not capable of thoughts that are beyond me, like why, like um, you know, what's the grand design? That's not for me to think about anymore. I used to spend too much time in that headspace where I was trying to figure it all out. And I've learned over time that that's not for me to figure out. It just gets me into trouble. It just gets me into a bad, uh, bad place. And I don't want to go there anymore. Appreciate you laying out some tools that you use to, hmm find some solitude in life and just kind of reset yourself in terms of your anger and that, that wanting to get away with something, does that present itself still? So there's the anger and then there's the get away with something. So jump on. Yeah. I mean, you know, the anger, it it creeps up. Sometimes I'm an impatient person, but now, you know, when you're, when you're working a good program and you're doing a, a 10th step, you, you kind of, you see that 
and you go, Oop, oh, wait a second, we got some anger here. And then you unpack it. You go, All right, where does this come from? What is this really? And you talk to somebody about it. You talk to your sponsor. You talk to somebody in the program. And then, you know, you get to a point where you can talk to people outside the program about it. And um, and that, that's kind of the whole purpose is following the you – know, I can be in the stream of life by using the tools to to handle these things when they creep up. Anger is one of them. I think the escapism for me never goes away. It's just – finding healthy ways to, to manage it. And getting away with stuff. Oh, the getting away with stuff. Uh, no, I don't try to get away with anything. In <laughs> fact, now I try to, I like, you know, we have this conversation in my group all the time. It's, it's sort of a funny one where, you know, what do you do if you see $50 on the ground and nobody's around, you know, do you pick it up? I, I like what's been said. It's certainly not mine, but it's the, don't pick up the rattlesnake. And so when I see something that I'm going to try to get away with, I hear the people in the program say, don't pick up that rattlesnake because it'll bite you. You know, if there's something that I'm going to have to try to keep to myself, I, I try not to pick up that rattlesnake. That's not for me. I don't want it. Like I, I recoil as if from a hot stove, right? I, get away from me. I, if there's something I'm going to have to, I think I'm going to have to be dishonest about later, get it away from me. I don't even want it. I could have used that last night. <laughs> My sister and brother-in-law were over, and at 6.30 at night, my sister-in-law decides she wants another cup of coffee. And I'm thinking, we all have young kids. And so I made her a decaf cup of coffee when she thought it was caffeinated. In my <laughs> mind, I'm doing her a favor, right? And I'm all proud of myself after they leave. I'm telling my husband, and I'm laughing, and I'm thinking, shit, I'm going to have to tell her. <laughs> She's never going to trust me again. <laughs> so silly i still feel like i did her a favor but it was still dishonest and i can't sit on it how silly and here you are talking about it i know i have to i have to clean it up so i think that's what happens over time that's how we we get and that's that's that to me is totally different than how i used to live my life i used to take some little joy and pleasure about getting away with something and now it's like if I if I feel like I got away with something, then I didn't get away with anything. I'm just torturing myself. Oh, so true. It's a little red flag. Right. So you were diagnosed with anxiety. Was that an accurate diagnosis? It was not. Um, I think that a lot of us, you know, there are there are mental issues and, and people should handle them appropriately, but I think a lot of us fall into this, uh, well, we have anxiety or we have this disorder or that disorder when all of a sudden you put, you know, 90 days, six months of sobriety together, working a good program and you go, you know what? I'm just a garden variety drunk. That's what I am. And that anxiety, you know, everybody's got a little anxiety. That's, that's a normal, healthy amount, I think. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, all the sleep disorders and all the uh, anxiety issues and I, that I thought I had, they went away. They don't exist. I mean, you put put together some time and sobriety and you, you, you figure out that that was all a result of the drinking and the drug use. And that was a result of my lifestyle. It wasn't the other way around. And I ask that question quite frequently when it comes up on here, and I get both answers. So sometimes it's 
yes, I do. And sometimes it's no, I don't. But I think the key is be honest with your doctor, completely honest. If you go to the doctor, just be honest. Agree. Yeah. And there are, there are people that, that do suffer from those issues. And I don't mean to you know, say that those don't exist. They, they do. And, and that's real stuff. And they should be honest with their doctor and, and take medication if that's what's appropriate. For me, it wasn't. Right, right. I, I'm happy to get both answers because it's just kind of a message, too, of a- alcohol is a depressant. It will cause anxiety and depression. I'm surprised a doctor that you're drinking four drinks a day would would jump to giving you anxiety medication. But it's a different time. That was a while ago. Hopefully people know more these days. Speaking of those doctors, did that... Um, psychology or psych student that asked you the question, have you tried AA? Have you ever looped back around to him? I didn't. I did go back to that doctor and asked if he, if that psych uh, psychiatrist or psychologist intern was still there. And he said, no, he'd moved on and, and was, you know, back at school or whatever. And so I didn't, you know, I, I see that as part of my spiritual experience though. Mm. I, I wish I could reach out to that guy. Um, I wish I would have found out from that doctor. That doctor's not there anymore. You know, mm. I think things are revealed more and more for me and with, you know, 10 years now, that was 10 years ago. So I look back and I, I think, man, I, I, I wish I could have thanked a few people here and there. Um, if I'd have known how much they were going to mean to me, I tried to do that now. So I think I'm, I'm better at that than I used to be, but some of those people, unfortunately, I've just, uh, I have no way to contact them. Yeah. Well, it's such a simple seed he planted. Have you tried AA? And it really took root in you. Mm-hmm. So for our final question for the alcoholic out there listening, still suffering, um, or even those and or those stuck on their recovery path, what message would you like to leave with them? Yeah, you know, I think for me, I was a guy that that didn't that didn't buy into the spiritual stuff. I was going to do AA without the God thing, and uh, and of course that that just doesn't work. I was a guy that you know, thought that people who pray were suckers. That's what I thought. Uh, I was wrong, and it took a lot for that to be uncovered that I was wrong, and that's okay. You know, my spiritual experience now, my spiritual life now, is one there where I feel like I am a fish and he is the ocean, and it's all around me, and that's how I live my life now. And to go from a guy that thought that people who went to church or or had this religion or even spirituality, I thought they were suckers. To go from that guy to the guy I am today, it's it's really where where the hope is. And so, you know, to to the alcoholic or addict that's still suffering, there really is hope on the other side. You just got to make a beginning. You can't have a day two until you have a day one. So go get your day one. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.